Well, good morning, church family. Hope you are excited to be in the air conditioning this morning. We just got back from the Metroplex, and uh, we have a lot more green in the Austin area. The Metroplex is just one giant sheet of concrete the size of Connecticut, and uh, it, it felt like an oven, but we're glad to be back and glad to not be on I-35. So, now if you've got your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to dive straight in because today's passage is going to take us a little bit of a different direction than where you might think based on where we left off last week, and we've got a lot to cover. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, and as you're going there, let me just remind us of, of where we've been the last several weeks. We've picked up in the middle of Kings and we find that Ahab is sitting on the throne, and God says that Ahab is more wicked than all of the rulers that have come before him, which means he's led the people of the northern kingdom, the kingdom split in two, the, the people of the northern kingdom, he's led them in a false form of worship to the one true God, like Jeroboam, but he's gone beyond that. He's married a foreigner who's the daughter of a pagan priest king. They've brought in the worship of the god Baal, and they've set up Asherah poles on the hills to his, his uh, mistress, and, and there is idolatrous worship taking place. And because of this and how rampant it has become in the land where the people are practicing both the worship of Baal but also some a supposed worship of God, Elijah comes out of nowhere. And he says, it's not going to rain or there's not going to be any dew for three years. And we see in chapter 17 that the Lord is the living God. He's the one who controls the rain and the dew. And, and we see God is living. And we see how Elijah stands and the widow responds. And then you come to, to last week, to chapter 18, and we see the, the battle. God and Baal are going to go head to head on Baal's sacred mountain, Mount Carmel. And there on that mountain, God showed himself not just to be the living God, but he is the only living God. He is God alone, and fire falls. And we see this picture at the end. The, the Israelites, they fall prostrate to the ground. They declare, the Lord, the Lord is God, his personal name. Not just any God, but the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And then they follow the, the command of Elijah. They slay the prophets. And we see on this note of hope, even Ahab obeys the word of God's prophet. Everything Elijah tells him to do, he does. The rain, God, Elijah prays, a cloud shows up after the seventh prayer. All of a sudden, rain pours out on the land. And when we last see, this is what it says. It says in verse 45 of chapter 18, In a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. We, we end chapter 18 not on a picture of sorrow, but with hope. That as the king seems to respond, so the people will respond. And so we're surprised when chapter 19 says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, or quite literally the Hebrew says, and he saw and arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness even further and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested, literally, he begged upon begging for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And so he lay down and he slept under the juniper tree. All of a sudden, you would expect, based on how last week ended, that now we're going to hear of national revival. But instead, Ahab goes back to Jezebel. He tells Jezebel, who's far more wicked than him, everything that Elijah has done. Jezebel sends a threat to take the life of Elijah, and it says Elijah gets up and he leaves. Now, based on how you want to go from here, we've got to be really careful, church family. We have got to be careful that we don't let how we read the words and our experience and our thoughts, that we don't read that into the text. We need to pay attention to what it says and what it doesn't say. Because if we're not careful, you can go down this passage and come out with a conclusion and miss what's really going on. So it says that there's this threat. Jezebel makes this threat, and it says, uh, your Bible likely says like mine, and, and he was, Elijah, afraid. And that's because the word for fear in the Hebrew is very close in spelling to the word for see. And there's a strong case that in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's really kind of a mixture that Elijah sees something, and what he sees disturbs him. Well, what is Elijah seeing? What is so? Because imagine, here's Elijah. All we've known of Elijah, every point up until now we've seen Elijah, anything God tells him to do, he does it. He goes out to the wilderness and lives off food that ravens bring him. He goes into the heart of, heart of the enemy, into, into the middle of, of the kingdom where Jezebel comes from, and he lives with a widow. He sees God's provision. He goes, he confronts Ahab, fire. I mean, he does everything. So this is a strange response for him to just all of a sudden become afraid. And notice, it can't be that he's afraid to die because he flees and asks God to kill him. What is going on? What is it that he sees? Well, we'll see this towards the end of the chapter, but we'll go ahead and look at it now. Towards the end of the chapter, he's going to tell God, the people seek to take away my life. What is it that Elijah sees? Elijah sees after fire falling, after the Israelites bowing down, after there seeming to be this point of revival, after years of faithful and lonely and hard ministry, what he sees is when Jezebel gives that word to Ahab, so the king goes, so the people go. And we know from the rest of the book of Kings, there is no national revival in the northern kingdom. In fact, the southern kingdom will have some good kings and there will be revivals. Never in the northern kingdom is there revival. Those Israelites falling there at Carmel gave at best impassioned lip service. Elijah sees this, and he gets up and he leaves. He goes to Beersheba, which is the southernmost city in the southern kingdom. He leaves his servant there. It would take him three days to get from where he was to Beersheba. He leaves his servant there, goes another day. Now we're four days on the run. He gets alone and he says, Lord, discouraged, weary, exhausted, depleted. Lord, take my life because I am no better than my father's, meaning 
I'm not any more successful than my fathers the prophets were. Or you can take it a different way. My fathers who, have, who are dead, they're with you. I'm as successful as they are right now, meaning I am worthless, Lord. I have stood in your servants. I have called the people. I have presented them your word, and nothing has happened. It seems as if, God, you have lost and I have failed. What do you do? When you're following the Lord, when you're hopeful and prayerful, when you're standing strong for revival, when you're, when you're honoring the Lord, what do you do when it seems as if God has lost and you have failed? This isn't that crazy to think of. Many of you will remember the ways churches were filled to the brim after 9-11. And you can go back and read articles from that time. I remember it well. There was true hope that maybe, just maybe, out of this tragedy of 9-11, there would be a third great awakening of revival in the United States of America. Oh, did that not happen? There's times you've responded, and maybe you've heard these the, 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 the sermons, and as you've seen Elijah, and you've decided, I, I'm going to stand, I'm going to stand firm, I'm going to stand zealously for the Lord's name, I'm going to pour my life out in ministry into these, into these children, into these youth, into these students, into these young adults, I'm going to pour my life out, and then I'm going to watch on Instagram and TikTok and social media as they reject and deconstruct everything I poured into them. What do you do. This is what Elijah is facing. He is at the end. He is exhausted. He is discouraged. It has been years long of a battle. He has stood, and he sees that for all the standing, for all the fire of God falling, nothing is changing. But in the midst of his weariness, we see God's comfort. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, out of nowhere, there was an angel touching him. And the angel said to Elijah, Arise, eat. Then Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So Elijah arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's, here's the first picture of God's comfort. All of a sudden, Elijah there laying, hoping that in the midst of the heat and the desert sun that, that he will just die, that the Lord will take him home. How surprising when all of a sudden one of the Lord's angelic, powerful, glorious messengers doesn't just show up, but this is one of the only, if not the only, I wasn't able to verify that this week, but it is one of the only times you ever see an angel physically touch another person. It speaks of an intimacy and a, a, a personalness. And what does God provide for Elijah? God doesn't rebuke Elijah. God doesn't correct Elijah. God doesn't call Elijah out. Instead, what does he do for the weary and tired and worn out? He gives him food, water, and a nap. And then he wakes him up and gives him more food and water. And the angel says, you're going to need this strength because you have a 40-day journey in front of you to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, you, you probably know Horeb by another name, Sinai. 
Sinai, that, that place where Moses was shepherding the flock of, of his father-in-law and he, he saw a bush that was burning but not being consumed by the fire and he, he went aside and out of the bush God cried out and said, you're on holy ground, take off your shoes and, and there God revealed his personal name, I am who I am. There at Sinai is where Moses brings the people of Israel and they worship God as they've been delivered out of Egypt. And there at Sinai, God descends in the cloud and the pillar of fire and gives the law. There, God declares not just his personal name, but a statement of his character that the Lord your God is gracious and loving kind and, and full of compassion, forgiving iniquity, but carrying out justice on those who don't repent. He declares his character, his uniqueness, and who he is. There on Sinai is the cave, the cleft, where God hides Moses and allows his glory to pass by. There at Sinai, the covenant relationship with God's people is made. It's here. It's here that Elijah must go when it says, and he came not just to a cave, but to the cave, very likely the place that Moses was hid by God, far from fleeing from God's presence. Where is Elijah going? He is going to the mountain that is representative. We've gone from the mountain of Baal to the mountain of God, the mountain where God reveals who he is, the mountain where God shows his character, the mountain where God demonstrates his glory, the mountain that would remind Elijah of everything that is tied to being in a covenant relationship of God. Far from running from God, he is pursuing God. And he goes to the mountain, to the cave, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, here's how we got to be careful. In my nature, I want to read, what are you doing here, Elijah? But do you notice it doesn't say the tone that God said it in? Just as much as you can ask, what are you doing here, Elijah? You can ask Elijah, why have you come here? What's on your heart? An invitation. And Elijah's honest. And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. So they've, re they've rejected right relationship. They've torn down your altars. They've rejected right worship. And they've killed your prophets with the sword. They've rejected your messengers. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He says, Lord, I have been not just zealous. That word zealous is actually a word, the root of which is where we get the word for jealousy, as in God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his name. Here the term is repeated twice, adding an emphasis, meaning that Elijah says, Lord, you know that I have proven completely and totally sold out and passionate for your name and glory. I have stood, I have done what you've asked, I have followed you, and here's the result. The result is your people, my, my people, they've, they've rejected the covenant. They've rejected your worship. They've rejected your messengers. And I'm alone am left. He lays out what is both a, com, both a complaint of weariness, but also a statement of indignation at the unrepentance of the people. So God said to Elijah, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing or a soft whisper, a gentle quiet 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, Elijah, why are you here? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. So here's what happens. Elijah makes it to the mountain. He's there in the cave. The word of the Lord says, go stand before me. And all of a sudden, pictured in your mind, it says that a, the Lord was passing by. So Elijah is aware the presence of God is coming near. And as God's presence comes near, it says a wind was so strong, rending, it was ripping rocks in half and, and grounding them into a powder is what the language speaks of. Can you imagine the ferocity of such a wind? It's not just a casual wind chime breeze at the end of the cave. You can imagine, picture Elijah there in that cave, the wind howling. You can hear stones falling and breaking above you and below you. And then after that, as you're in that cave, an earthquake, a ground shaking before the presence of God. After that, fire consuming. You can smell the smoke. But in all of these displays of natural power, all of which in times past God has been in and spoken through, here the text is emphatic, God is not in any one of them. And then after they all pass, a soft silence. And when Elijah hears that low, soft whisper. He hears and knows the voice of God. And he goes and stands out, and God repeats the question, why are you here? And, and Elijah lays down what, what is there honestly in his heart. And then the Lord answers him. The Lord said, go. I want you to return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. I want you to go back, but I want you to go back the long way through the wilderness. It's a 310-mile journey on foot, by the way. And when you have arrived, you will anoint Hazael, the king of Aram, and Jehu, the, king, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meloah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's what God says. He says, I hear you, Elijah. I hear you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back, and I want you to begin to set the, 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 the people in place. And, you, and I'm using you to set motions in, in place that are ultimately going to lead to the, the direct death of Ahab and Jezebel and the overthrow of his regime. Not only that, you're alone. You are the last of the prophets. And you may say, well, is Elijah being exaggeratory? We know Obadiah follows God faithfully from the previous chapter. He's hid a hundred prophets in caves, so here's these 7,000. Likely what Elijah is saying is he says, I'm the only one who's out in public able to do anything. God says, well, I'm going to raise up Elisha, and ultimately you're going to pass your mantle to him. 
And not only that, not only will I be faithful and just to deal with the sin of my people, I will also be faithful and just to preserve that small remnant who has refused to bow down in any way. Now look at Elijah's response. He starts off this chapter weary, worn, feeling worthless, unable to stand in the service of God, ready to be done. God feeds him. God gives him sleep. God feeds him again. God meets with him. God listens to him. God speaks to him. God lays out his plan. Look at Elijah's response. So he departed from there. And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Then Elisha asked to go back and tell his parents something. And Elijah says, go, but come back. And so Elisha goes and he comes back. And it says at the end, says, then Elisha rose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. And the way that word is phrased, ministered, really speaks to a, a duel. Elisha ministered and encouraged and strengthened Elijah, and Elijah ministered and mentored and strengthened Elisha. And next thing we'll see, further war comes. Here's what we find, church family. We find a man, Elisha, who had, in every way we've watched has stood zealously, obediently. God has asked of him to do some zany, crazy, wild things that are out of the box. It has by no means spared Elisha hardship. He's, he spent, uh, he's been the most public enemy of his people for years. He is the direct cause in their eyes of, of the, the, the lack of rain and dew. That, that means the the animals that are dying, the crops that are failing, the people that are dying of starvation, he is number one on the FBI's most wanted list. He shows up, God moves in this powerful way. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, there are two miracles regarded as the single greatest displays of God's power and deliverance. It's the parting of the Red Sea and the fire at Carmel. He's part of one of the greatest miracles in, in all of the Old Testament, one of the greatest miracles until the coming of Christ. And he lays himself on the line, and the total result is that when the king's wife says, kill him, the king goes along and the people will follow, and there is no revival. And here this weary and worn and sorrowful prophet who is at the end shows up to the Lord, and we find that God who brings comfort and rest and restoration. And we find a God who is faithful and just both to deal with what is taking place but to preserve His people. And because Elijah has met God at that mountain, he has received his rest and comfort. We see when God now restores him and prepares him for further service, with the same zealousness we've seen before, we see again, God says, do it, and he goes. Church family, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful passage where we've got to be aware that there is a, a gracious care, God's gracious care for his discouraged people in, in need of rest. And we see his just faithfulness to preserve his people, to deal with sin and rebellion. And for you and I today, what that means is we have to prove earnest to seek his comfort and rest so that we can prove zealous for His name's sake. We've got to prove earnest. Look back, look back at the text with me. We see God's gracious care. He provides food. He provides sleep. 
Where does he lead Elijah? He leads Elijah into a place of solitude, into a place of his presence. He leads Elijah back to a place where he makes his name and his character known and his covenant known. And church family understand, you and I, if we endeavor to walk zealously or for Christ, you and, you and me, we will face discouragement, guaranteed. You're going to stand for the Lord. Students, you're going to honor the Lord. You're going to proclaim the gospel to your friends, adults. You're going to be, be at the office. You're going to stand for the Lord. You're going to be given a policy that conflicts with what the Lord's word says, and you're going to stand for the Lord, and you're going to think, wow, look, God's moving, and then you're going to see nobody respond. You're going to be a former youth pastor who bled and poured out life into all sorts of students who knows that you stood faithful before the Lord and you're going to watch as students become adults and leave and depart and do their own things. Discouragement is a reality. And what God is going to do, part of the way His care is God will always lead us in discouragement back to Himself, back to His character, loving kindness, full of compassion, forgiving, just he will lead us back to the covenant, that place where our relationship with Him has never been about what performance or ministry we could do for Him, but has been about the fact that we are made in His image. He sent His one and only perfect Son who lived the life we failed, who died the death we deserve, who rose again victorious, and who by His grace and His blood we are saved. That's where the Lord leads us back in His gracious care. He leads us back. He speaks to Elijah. But notice how he speaks to Elijah, not through some mass display, but through the still, small quiet of his voice. He speaks to us, church family, through the still, small quiet of his word. He listens to Elijah. He hears all that Elijah says. He allows for honest communication. He directs Elijah. He renews Elijah. In his comfort, he renews Elijah because he's not done working through Elijah. And do you notice, church family, he never once condemns Elijah for the fact that Elijah is a human who gets tired, who gets hungry, and who faces discouragement living in a world where even the people of God will reject his voice. So church family, if this is the gracious care God provides, we must earnestly seek his comfort. How do we earnestly seek his comfort, pastor? Well, we do it by trusting in his character as he reveals in the word. It means we need to, to know and trust who He truly is and not relate to Him on the basis of our fears or poor expectations. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Here's what I've discovered in my life. There are times when I will feel the weight of the world, when I will face that discouragement, when I have stood for the Lord, when I've poured out faithfully, and it seems like nothing is taking place. And, and what's, what's sad is there is a temptation on a human level, for whatever reason, it's easier to isolate from the Lord than to just truck it straight to His presence. Why? Well, one is because I real fears. Have I done enough? Maybe the reason no one's responding is because I didn't do enough. I didn't pour out enough. I didn't say it right. I didn't do it well. Have, have I done enough? Or will God really, will God really be there? Will, will God really respond to me? Is he, am I, is he really, is His eyes really on me? We get filled with doubts and fears on our own, much less the fact that we have an enemy who will also throw our expectations. We want to come to the Lord in the midst of our discouragement and get an immediate, loud, bold answer. Yet realize with Elijah, God sees him the whole time. God hears his cry at the very beginning. But did you notice when Elijah says, Lord, I'm absolutely worthless, take my life, did you notice God doesn't speak to him right then and there? Instead, God gives him a nap and food. 
In fact, the whole, the whole timeline of, uh, there, there is a minimum between Elijah seeing and being discouraged and fleeing, and before God speaking to him verbally, there is a minimum of at least 44 days. Because God's ways are not like our ways. And because, praise God, he's not just a text messenger. Instead, we need to understand that God's response may take time. It's not unique with Elijah. Job, God hears all of Job's sorrow the whole book, but it's not until the end that he answers. Daniel, Daniel's praying earnestly for a word of direction from the Lord, and the angel that brings the message says, God heard your prayer 21 days ago, but I've been locked in a spiritual battle with demons. And I'm just now getting you, but be aware he heard your cry. It may take time, but it takes time not because God is not hearing, but because God knows what he's doing. It may be soft. God speaking to you and to me may not be through some loud, massive, Lord, give me direction, and next thing you know, all the stoplights come together and form a word, and you go, well, that's what it is. <laughs> or I, I went to college with people, oh, Lord, tell me, tell me where you want me to go. In the middle of the night, they woke up and shouted a country, oh, God, that must be where you want me to go. Or you ate some really terrible food the night before and had a wonky dream. No, God actually often speaks through the still, small, quiet of His voice. Which church family? You and I have access to 24-7. Remember, and I think I've shared before, so I'll share it more briefly now, going to my dad in high school and saying, Dad, I just feel like I'm just seeking the Lord. I'm just in a dry spot, and he's just quiet. And I expected my dad to say, well, you need to catch a Greyhound bus, go to the Rockies, find a cave, and seek God. And instead, my father, being the wise man he is, said, you need to change your expectations. What? That's the most unspiritual answer I've ever heard. He said, how's a person speak? I said, through their words. He says, how's a person speak when they use their words, but they're not going to speak audibly? I said, they write them down. He said, what do you call your Bible? The Word of God. You need to change your expectations. Every time you open up your Bible, you are reading what God is speaking. Amen. You're not devoid of a word. Now, don't mistake. Don't misinterpret Scripture and go, well, God said David slew some Philistines. I need to go slay some Philistines today. That's poor hermeneutics. That's a different question. You got questions about that? Go listen to Bibleology from the spring. But we have His Word, church family. It may be soft. It may be alone. And maybe this is more binding on those of us who are younger, but there is a tendency to always be seeking the Lord in our discouragement as long as there's a multitude of people around us. Now listen, we should never pull away from the community of God. But also understand this. Jesus didn't say you and your community get in the closet. He said you get in the closet. You get on your knees. There are going to be times when in order to really hear from the Lord... We don't isolate from community, but we've got to be willing to go meet with God alone. Not just in worship, not just in a small group, not just at a coffee table over a cup of coffee, but alone. Did you see that? God brought Elijah to a place where it was just he and Elijah. 
need to trust in His unfailing character and His Word. We need to be aware of our fears and expectations, but we need to embrace the rest He provides. Sometimes the rest God provides is not just some spiritual uplift. Sometimes God, literally what God would want to do to bring comfort to you and I is for us to take a nap. You, I didn't expect to get that today, Pastor. I can't tell you how many times my grandfather has said, Wes, sometimes the most godly thing you can do is take a nap. I can also tell you how many times he said, never make a decision when you are massively discouraged. Notice with Elijah, Elijah's discouraged, but the first way that God comforts him isn't by engaging in conversation. It's to give him sleep and food to nourish his body back to a point where he can have the conversation. And church family, we live in a day and age where all we do is go, 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 go. Busy, 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 busy. And rest is like a foreign word. We talk about it, but understand, if rest came easy for us, natural for us, it wouldn't be a command. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You and I will have to make choices to rest. You and I will have to make choices to, to pause. Oh, did you catch that, by the way? The command to eat and drink, those were commands. Elijah had to respond to a command. He had to obey to eat and drink. God is well aware of the fact that we're humans and we have real limits and boundaries. That's why he established rest. And church family, we need to rest and we need to find his comfort so that we can actually follow him zealously. You see, church family, God is faithful and just. He's faithful and just. He is going to deal with. He lays out to Elijah the plan, anoint this one, anoint this one, anoint this one, and, and here's what's going to lay out. His, Israel's idolatry is not going to go unmet. Their sin has not missed the gaze of God, but God is patient and God is allowing a time frame so that people would respond back to him. And by the way, what that means for you and I, when you realize that God is faithful and just to deal with our sin, but he is also patient, we better pay really clear attention when he tells us something's off in our life. The patience of God is to be responded to, not abused. But not only is God faithful and just to deal with sin and rebellion, but he's going to preserve his people. Did you catch that, Elijah? There's, there's 7,000. There is a group of people in Israel. You feel alone. There's a group of people who have not bowed down, who have not sold themselves out. They have walked faithfully with me, and I will preserve them. Just as God is faithful and just to deal with sin, he's faithful and just to preserve his people. It's why Jesus can say the gates of hell will never persevere against what? The church. The only way the church disappears from this world is if God removes it. Because it doesn't matter how bad this world gets, God is faithful and just to preserve His people. Now that doesn't mean that His people never face suffering, and that doesn't mean that we can't be killed as His people. But it does mean that God is faithful and just. It does mean that every individual who stands for God, whether you are an Elijah or an unnamed 7,000, God sees you. And he sees you seeking to be faithful, and he honors that. He takes note of that. Church family, we've got to remember that even if the revival we want to see around us does not happen today, it is not a reflection of a lack of power of the blood of Christ to save, because the blood of Christ is saving people all around this world today and far worse situations than we find ourselves here in Pflugerville today. 
And by the way, if you're in this room and you say, hey, I'm discouraged, I don't have hope, but it's not because I'm zealous for the Lord, it's because I'm empty. Maybe you're watching online. I don't know that hope, Pastor. I don't. Can I just encourage you, just as God is faithful and just to deal with sin, just as He is faithful and just to preserve His people, He is faithful and just. If you will respond in faith today, if you will say, Jesus, I get it. I'm a sinner. I was made for you, but to be in relationship with you, I've got to receive your salvation, and I am trusting you with all of my being. I don't even know what that looks like. I just know you are who you say you are and you did what you say you did. I ask you to save me. He is faithful and just and today can save you and write your name in his book of life. Because his blood is just as powerful today as at Pentecost. It's not diminished or broken even if his people are. The upholding power of his blood is not broken even if others are falling and deconstructing and walking away. And because he's faithful and just, church family, we must prove zealous for his name. We're going to face discouragement. We seek His comfort, and as we receive and are restored by His comfort, we allow it to spur us on into greater zealousness. Elijah's zealousness is emphasized, zealous upon zealous. Every command we see given, he obeys. He's weary and broken by the things of the Lord. He's indignant at the idolatry of His people. Church family, are we broken by the things of God? Is there such a wholehearted passion for Him, for His holiness, for His glory, for His ways, for His ministry, for His heart, that when we see, whether it be in the church or in the world, but, but especially in the church, when we see idolatry, when we see ministry not being done, does it break our heart like it breaks His? Does it eat at us to see so many who go to church every week and hear the word of the Lord preached clearly, yet never change in life? The sad reality is many of us should be more discouraged than we are because we're so wrapped up in our own world and our own ways that our hearts really aren't broken by the things that break God. Let's be clear, church family. Impassioned lip service is not zealous faithfulness. We can come in this room and sing, blessed be your name, with our hands raised, tears streaming down our face. That doesn't mean we love Jesus. Trusting who he is at his word, obeying what he calls us to be by his grace and power, that's what it looks like to love Jesus. Which means, how do we prove zealous? We obey his word. It means in times of discouragement and weariness, we must continue to obey, church family, His Word, His calling. And we don't obey because we see fruit. We obey because He is God. And there will be fruit eternally, even if we don't see it here. We must obey His Word, but church family, as we finish out the passage, we need to understand part of what it looks like to prove zealous for His name is recognizing it's bigger than us. Did you catch that in the passage? Elijah comes discouraged. God comforts him. Elijah's honest. God speaks to him. God brings restoration, but then God brings up this new person, Elisha. He says, Elijah, what I'm up to is bigger than you. In fact, my plan to correct it all, it's going to happen after you're gone, after I've removed you from the equation. 
It's gonna outlast you. My ministry goes beyond you, not only that, but I've got someone who needs you to put your mantle on. Church family, understand today, we need to prove zealous for the Lord, for his ministry, for his passion, but understanding that, every aspect of it is bigger than me and bigger than you. His ministry will go on after every one of us have breathed our last breath. His ministry will go on not because of us, but in spite of us. His ministry is not about putting us up on a pedestal. We're not a part of a church for, for what we can get out of it, for singing the songs we want and the style we want and having the Bible studies we want. Church isn't about us. It is about the Lord, his ministry, his ways, his glory. And if we're going to be zealous for that, then church family, it does mean in realizing that we also have to pass it on. If Elijah doesn't go to Elisha, then the work that God wants to do through that vein stops and God will come up with a new plan. Church family, if we want to be a church that doesn't take ourselves out of the game, then as we prove zealous for his word, we obey what his word says, but it also means in realizing it's bigger than us, we have to have a heart to do whatever it takes to pass the faith, to pass the ministry on to every subsequent generation. Otherwise, we will die. God won't die. His church, capital C, won't die. But we can remove ourselves from the equation. But not if in receiving his comfort we prove zealous for his name. Oh, church family, realize God has got a work he is doing. And on the day when you feel or we feel as a group or maybe you feel personally discouraged because it just seems like, God, are you really moving? Or I just don't see people responding or what's going on. Take that discouragement and find the incredible comfort of God. Hear the still, small, quiet voice as you stand there on the precipice of the mountain of God. And as you are revived and breathe the fresh wind in that comfort, oh, church family, may we prove more zealous because God isn't done. Let's pray. Father, if we live a life that honors you, it is inevitable we will face discouragement. Not because something is broken with you, not because you have failed, not because you have lost. You haven't lost. In fact, God, not only have you not lost, you've already won. Victory is not in question. The reality is we live in a world as ambassadors of a place that we've not yet seen, but where our citizenship lies, where our hope lies, and we are living in a world that is completely and totally in rebellion against you, filled with brokenness and sorrow and hurt and pain and anger and suffering. And Father, it's not hard when being poured out for you and standing for you to be discouraged, but that, Lord, we would find your comfort God, that for those in this room that are just, their tank is at empty, Lord, that they would find a way to seek your rest. Even that, that's as simple as they just need to go home and take a nap today. Get a good meal. Lord, they would get what they need to get to be able to come into your presence alone, to be able to, to receive your comfort, for you to breathe a fresh wind in ourselves, Lord, so that in such a pivotal time, we would prove zealous for your name. That we would hunger for your word. We would trust your word. We would honor your word. That what breaks your heart would break our hearts, Lord. And that we would pass it on. 
that we would be marked by discipleship of being living, moving, breathing disciples of the living one and only God whom by his grace and power make disciples who make disciples. So Jesus, we look to you. May you be pleased in our response. In your name I pray.